of aqidah and principles of seeking knowledge. So we finished last week the part of the subject that relates to seeking knowledge. And this week, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to begin the topic which relates to the issue of aqidah. So I want to begin by giving you a bit of an introduction as to what is meant by aqidah. Because we need to understand what it is that we're studying. We need to understand its limits, i.e. where does it, its hudud, where does it start and stop? Is how you pray a matter of aqidah? Is how you fast a matter of aqidah? Does aqidah only relate to the meaning of la ilaha illallah? Is what we believe about the companions connected to aqidah? What is and what isn't? Where are the limits? Where are the, the hudud? And in general, when we want, a, we want a definition for something, we want a definition ideally, which is jami'un mani'. Why do we say we want a definition which is jami'un mani'? Two words, jami'un mani'. Jami'un, everything that is a part of that definition should be included. It shouldn't be like you read a word and then, okay, oh, it's, we've missed a part. And it should be mani'. Everything which is not part of that subject should be excluded from the definition. And that's why when you seek knowledge, you're going to find that definitions are one area where the scholars have many, many, many opinions. You're going to find this in anything. The definition of any, pretty much anything, most things. When you start studying the definition, you're going to find that the scholars have many, many definitions for things. Because they're trying to achieve that goal of a definition which is jami'un mani'. It is comprehensive, enough that it includes everything, but it's limited enough that it excludes everything that shouldn't be there. So when we talk about aqidah, let's start with the linguistic meaning of aqidah. So aqidah comes from the Arabic root aqada. Al-ayn wal-qaf wal-dal aqada. And if we look at this root aqada, we see a number of meanings. From the meanings of the word aqada are to tie something firmly. And from this is the word uqad. وَمِن شَرِّ النَّفَّثَاتِ فِي الْعُقَدِ Uqad are knots. You know when you have a rope and you tie a knot? Those are uqad. And this comes from aqada. So one of the meanings of aqada is to tie something firmly. 
One of the meanings of aqadah is to become hard and strong. When something becomes hard, when it becomes strong and difficult to break. From the meanings of aqadah are to hold onto something tightly, to grab hold of something tightly and not let go. From the meanings of the word aqada and its various roots, you know, across across the whole word, its various forms, its various different shapes and different different connected words. From the meaning of these, some of these connected words is to grasp hold of something. And from the meaning of aqada is to be certain. And from the meaning of aqada is to affirm something with conviction, to have conviction in something. So we mentioned the word uqad. You could also mention the word ta'qid. Ta'qid. Ta'qid, it means determination. And the word that we're most interested in from aqada, i'tiqad. I'tiqad are the firm beliefs and convictions that a person has, whether they're related to Islam or not. We're talking linguistically at the moment. Linguistically, al-i'tiqad are firm beliefs and convictions, things that you believe in very, very, very uh, firmly and things that you believe in very strongly. I'm going to give you some definitions that various scholars gave for aqidah because I want you to understand the differences that exist in definitions and why or what criticism we might level at certain definitions. So the first definition, and this is very, very common, is that the meaning of i'tiqad or the meaning of aqidah in Islam are the six pillars of faith to believe in Allah his angels, his books, his messengers the last day and to believe in predestination the good of it and the bad of it this is one definition one definition is aqidah it means the six pillars of faith what's the problem with this definition the problem with this definition is that it is not Jami'ah. It doesn't include every point of aqidah. Or at least it doesn't obviously include every point of aqidah. You can say to a certain extent that every point of aqidah can be argued to come back to one of those pillars. You can, you can argue that. But for example, how do we clarify our belief in the companions as being from our aqidah and that we don't curse them and we don't say anything bad about them and we leave argumentation and criticism over what happened between them after the death of the Messenger of Allah 
Where does this come into that? Yes, you can argue that is part of the belief in the messenger and what he brought and part of the belief in the scripture because Allah mentioned it in the Quran. But generally this definition is a little bit incomplete. It's missing some points of aqeedah which are not mentioned in here. Okay. Some of the scholars added to that and they said Aqeedah is the six pillars of faith and our belief about the companions of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So they added, they saw the deficiency and they added to it. But the problem is that this is still not, you don't feel this definition is jami'. It doesn't, you don't feel that everything in Aqeedah is found in there. You feel like most of it, 90%, 80%, but you don't feel like they covered every single point in that. Okay, let's take another definition. Those matters which are believed in with certainty and conviction in your heart and soul, they are not tainted with any doubt or uncertainty. Those matters which are believed in with certainty and conviction. Where did they get certainty and conviction from? From the meaning of aqada. I need to be certain, al-i'tiqad, to be certain about something. In your heart and soul, they are something your heart is totally certain about. There is no doubt or uncertainty in them. What's the problem with this one? The problem with this definition is that it is not mani'. It doesn't stop things going in there that are not part of aqeedah. So there are some things that you might be certain of that have no relation to aqeedah at all. Or little relation to aqeedah. So you may believe something about a mas'ala in fiqh, a matter of fiqh that you believe in with certainty and conviction, and you're totally convinced by it, but it has nothing to do with, it has nothing to do with aqeedah. So again, it's not a bad definition, but it just probably includes a few too many things that perhaps shouldn't be there. And this is open to debate, by the way. I mean, you guys are welcome to critique that my critique, you're welcome to critique what I said. You're welcome to say to me that I don't agree. I think that is that includes everything. I think it's clear what the author of the definition meant. The author, author of the definition here meant matters of belief, not matters of fiqh. However, we would say it's still not, it's still not really, really comprehensive in such a way that, or it doesn't block everything and we want an explanation, we want a definition which is really comprehensive and completely blocks everything that is not part of aqeedah from coming into it. One of the definitions that I like, and there are lots of definitions, but one of the definitions that I like is this one. Those matters which are known from the Qur'an 
and the authentic ahadith. This is part one. Those matters which are known from the Quran and the authentic ahadith which the Muslim must believe in his heart. Those matters which are known from the Quran and the authentic ahadith which a Muslim must believe in his heart in acknowledgement of the truth of Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I'm just going to give you sort of, before I go back to that, I'm going to give you a small tip. When you're writing notes and we say sallallahu alayhi wasallam, don't write sad or s or s-w-s or s-a-s. This is bad etiquette with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu and the scholars of Hadith were unanimous in condemning the person who writes S-A-W or who writes S or who writes Saad or who writes Saad, Lam, Meme or anything like that. What you do, you say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and you leave a, a gap, a space. Then when you have time, you go back and you write Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam even at home or whatever. But you don't write Saad or S-A-W. This is bad etiquette with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Going back to the definition. Those matters which are known from the Quran and the authentic ahadith. Which the Muslim must believe in their heart. In acknowledgement of the truth of Allah and his Messenger. I think this is a, a good definition. It is jami', it includes everything which is a part of aqeedah, and it is mani', it stops everything which is not a part of aqeedah, or at least most, as best as, you know, as best as you can come up with. First of all, those matters which are known from the Quran and the authentic ahadith, that tells us that our source of aqeedah is the book of Allah and the sunnah of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You may have firm conviction that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But this has nothing to do with your aqeedah. The aqeedah are those matters that are found within the Quran and the hadith. If Wallahi, one, one matter that you could criticize from the author is not mentioning ijma'ah. Unless the author means by that, that the ahadith indicate ijma'ah. Yani the ahadith indicate consensus. Because essentially we take our aqidah from three things. From the book of Allah, from the sunnah of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and from those matters which, upon which there is consensus. There is ijma'ah, yani all of the scholars among the companions or all of the scholars of a particular age, and we'll get into it in usul al-fiqh, agree upon a particular matter. And ijma' is important in aqeedah. There are matters which are very, very important for which the proof of them or one of the strongest proofs for them is consensus. But it could be argued that the author means by that that the hadith is a proof for consensus because the Prophet ﷺ said, my ummah will never gather upon misguidance. 
meaning that the hadith itself is a proof for, is a proof for consensus. However, if he said those matters which are known from the Quran and the sound ahadith and consensus, it would be even better. Which the Muslim must believe in his heart. That tells you that these are things you believe. They are beliefs. They are not how you pray. They're not how you raise your finger in the tashahhud. They're not about whether you, uh, you, know, you do this particular action or that one. Or they're not about saying good words to people. They are beliefs that you hold in your heart. That being said, the fact that they are beliefs that you hold in your heart does not mean that they are restricted to the heart. Be careful about this issue. We're going to come to this in the definition of Iman. Iman is a belief that you have in your heart and a word that you say with your tongue and an action that you do with your limbs. Al-Imanu tasdiqun bil-qalb It's belief that you have in your heart and it's it's something you say with your tongue and something you act upon with your limbs. So it's not like these beliefs are like stay locked up in your heart and they have no connection to the things that you do. Not everything that you do, the sajda that you do is based upon that aqeedah, those beliefs that you have. Everything that you do is based upon them. However, as a, you know, as a starting place, it's effectively what you put in your heart in terms of convictions, beliefs, things that you really believe in. And there is one more sentence in acknowledgement of the truth of Allah and His Messenger And this is an important addition, I believe. Because what it does is it limits it to matters of belief and conviction. You may put many things in your heart that you believe firmly in that come from the Quran and the Sunnah. But we're talking about things that can be said that by believing in them, you have acknowledged the truth of Allah and His Messenger When I believe that the companions are the best of the people after the Messenger I am acknowledging the truth of the Quran and the Sunnah. I'm acknowledging what the Prophet ﷺ told us, what Allah told us in the Quran. It's not a matter of fiqh, it's not a matter of you know disagreements and confusion or masail or ikhtilaf or madahib. It's a matter of me showing that I believe in the Quran and the Sunnah. So they are those matters that you hold in your heart which show that you believe in the book of Allah and in the sunnah of the messenger And as we said, it doesn't stop in the heart. The reason that it is so important is first of all, that your aqeedah is what defines you as a Muslim. It is the answer to the question, what do you believe? If anyone asks you, non-Muslim, Muslim, you know, sectarian, whatever, they ask you, what do you believe? What kind of a Muslim are you? 
the answer that you give to that question is your aqidah. And that's why it's so important. It's not about a label. We talk about labels later on. It's not about a label, but it's about you have a box in your heart that you put your beliefs in and you say, this is me. This is what I'm going to bring before Allah Yawm Al-Qiyamah and say, I believed in this. I read the Quran and I believed in this. I read the Sunnah and I believed in this. Those things that you put in that box, they are your aqidah. They are what you carry forward and you tell to the people. They are what you, you say that this is what defines me as a Muslim. From the means or from the reasons that aqidah is so important is that aqidah was the action or was the or teaching it and beginning by teaching it was the action of all of the messengers and there was no disagreement among the messengers in aqidah that's how important it is just to put that in context there were so many differences between the messengers in fiqh in how they prayed what was halal what was haram how they married, what they could eat and drink. And that shows you that these issues are relatively unimportant compared to belief. Because beliefs and convictions did not change from Adam until Muhammad Not even a single point differed in aqidah from Adam until the Prophet and that is a major thing because there were a lot of differences you read for example the story of yusuf you hear about pressing wine and you bowing and all of these different various different things lots of things you hear about differences this was halal this was haram this was allowed this was not even in islam things started off being halal and then became haram started off being haram and then became halal but the aqidah never ha it never happened to our aqidah it never happened that our aqidah was something in Mecca and something else in Medina. It was absolutely consistent all the way through the message of every Prophet and the message of the Prophet in Islam from, from the very first moment in Mecca until the very last moment in Medina. That's why we describe all of the Prophets as being Muslim. Because their aqidah was one, their belief, their convictions, what they believed about Allah was one. And from the means of importance is that the Prophet ﷺ spent the vast majority of his time in Mecca teaching aqidah before he taught salah, before he taught zakah, before he taught any of the outward actions, jihad, or any of the outward actions of Islam, he taught aqidah before everything else. And that is why the Makkan surahs, as we're going to cover in our modules on the Quran, are primarily aqidah. The surah Makkiyah, the surahs that were revealed in Makkah, are overwhelmingly on the topic of aqidah. Beliefs and convictions belief in Allah, belief in the angels, belief in the messengers. This is what the Prophet ﷺ began by teaching. 
And really you can argue that for the first, at least the first seven to ten years were spent almost exclusively teaching Aqidah. And that is why this is such an important topic. And the majority of the Qur'an was revealed about matters of Aqidah. If you look at the Qur'an, the majority of the Qur'an deals with what? Who is Allah, the names of Allah, the attributes of Allah, the actions of Allah, belief in Allah, belief in the last day, belief in the angels, belief... The Qur'an is primarily a book of belief. The fiqh within the Qur'an in terms of the, the laws, in terms of the halal and the haram, is not as much as the belief. And so you can honestly easily see that the majority of the Qur'an was revealed about issues of belief. And so this gives it a certain amount of importance above other, above other issues. Now, I'm not going to go much beyond that. There are other things to say about it. There are lots of things we could say about it. But the main thing is we understand what we're studying. We have a good idea of what we're studying. We know that we're going to be studying beliefs and convictions whose basis is in the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the Ijma' and consensus which when you believe in them they show that you believe in the Qur'an and in the in the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and what we're going to do today is we're going to do a very short text Actually, my initial idea was to do Usul al-Sunnah by Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala. Usul al-Sunnah is a beautiful book. However, it would not be possible to do Usul al-Sunnah in one lesson. Even bil-ikhtisar, even with shortening and cutting it down to the minimum, it would be very, very hard to cover Usul al-Sunnah in one lesson. However, in the English print of Usul al-Sunnah, which is called Foundations of the Sunnah by Imam Ahmad, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahimahullah ta'ala, there is a very small treatise, very, very small, one page, uh, one A4 page approximately, and this treatise is narrated from Al-Imam Ahmad as being the consensus of over 90 of the Tabi'un. Over 90 of the people met from the Tabi'un, from the generation that came after the Prophet wasallam and his companions agreed on these points of Aqidah. And it's very small and almost, in fact, I can pretty much say every point mentioned in it is also mentioned in Usul al-Sunnah. So I kind of want you to read Usul al-Sunnah by Imam Ahmad. I want to make that the recommended reading, Foundations of the Sunnah by Imam Ahmad. Uh, however, I wanted to do it in a more summarized form. So this treatise is very, very, very summarized. It's called the Sunnah upon which 
the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam died. And essentially, the key points that are mentioned in Usul Sunnah are mentioned in here. Most of the key points. And Usul Sunnah expands upon it, but this, is, this has many, many of the points that we would want to cover. And the aim is just to give you a flavor of what it's like to study Aqidah, really. I mean, we won't get into too much. We'll try and mention a couple of evidences for each one. We won't get into, you know, into every little detail. But we just want to give you an idea of the masail, the matters, the issues, the topics that can be considered principles of Aqidah and then later on in our final week of this subject which will be week four that's the last week before we change to study the Quran we'll cover one of these issues in considerable detail which is the issue of takfir because takfir is such an, a major issue in our time and every one of you know what is happening in terms of the world and all of these problems and you know what has happened between the Muslims in terms of this so I think of all of the points in our time, the one that you most need to be very fluent in is the issue of, you know, after you understand the shahada and the basic principles of Iman, that you have to be, you know, you, you have to be familiar with the issue of uh, takfir and those issues that relate to takfir, takfir, al-khuruj, rebellion and things like that. So we're going to take that one for a case study, a detailed study in the last week. However, in this, we're just going to go over these points which Al-Imam Ahmad narrated from 90 of the Tabi'oon. And this uh, Risala is found in a book called Tabaqat Al-Hanabila. That's in your notes. It's found in a book called Tabaqat Al-Hanabila by Al-Qadi Abu Al-Hussein Muhammad bin Abi Ya'la Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Uh, and he mentions it in the, trans in the biography of Al-Hasan ibn Ismail. Uh, so eventually it says that Al-Hasan ibn Ismail narrated to us, he narrated to us that Ahmad ibn Hanbal, the Imam of Ahl sunnah I'm translating this from Arabic, so you might have some small differences in words in your notes. Don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. The Imam of Ahl Sunnah and the one who was patient at the time of the trial. This trial, I'm not going to mention too much about it, but I highly recommend if you want an Iman boost, you know, for the week. In the English translation of Foundations of the Sunnah, there is a biography of Al Imam Ahmad relating to the trial that happened with the Quran. Because the people were put to trial over whether the Qur'an was the speech of Allah or whether the Qur'an was created. And the people were tortured over it. People were tortured because they said that the Qur'an was the speech of Allah. And very, very few people remained steadfast during their torture. Most of them used the excuse of, of being allowed to, to say a word of disbelief because of a fear for their lives. So they said that the Quran is created and the, and the torture was left from them. One of the very, very few people who remained steadfast during that trial and torture was Al-Imam Ahmed, 
rahimahullah ta'ala, such that he became known for it above everyone else. It became known that he was the one who was patient at the time when the people were tortured over their belief in the Qur'an. And there are so many karamat, yani so many amazing sort of miraculous events that happened to Imam Ahmed during this time that it is well, well worth a read of his biography as it relates to the mihna, the trial where the people were tortured over their belief in the Qur'an. Such that Imam Ahmed is given the, the laqab, he's given a title, As-Sabir al-Mihna. He is the one who remained patient over the torture and the trial that the people were, were put through when almost everyone from the, even from the scholars and from the nobles and the people of knowledge caved into the, to the severity of the torture that was made and the hardship that he went through for the sake of preserving our belief in the Qur'an rahimahullah ta'ala. So it's well worth a read and you can find it, you'll get, I believe there's only one copy of Foundations of the Sunnah and if you, you get hold of it in English, it's made up of many, it's made up of Foundations of the Sunnah and some other treaties and, bio, and, and notes and footnotes, lots of things in it. But one of the things you'll find in there is a brief biography of Imam Ahmed and particularly the section that relates to the, the trial that he was put through with regard to the Qur'an. He said, 90 men from the Tabi'een and the leaders of the Muslims and the leaders of the Salaf, the Salaf, the people who came before us, and the scholars of the towns agreed, and they reached consensus that the sunnah which the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam died upon was. Is this an exclusive list of the sunnah that the Prophet sallallahu died upon? No, it's not an exclusive list. However, it is highlighting certain points and you'll see each one of these points is highlighted by means of a refutation against a group of people who said the opposite. And this requires a little bit of explanation. So in the time of the companions, there was virtually no disagreement in Aqidah at all. No disagreement in Aqidah whatsoever. Minor, there were, you can, you can bring the issues on one hand. Did the Prophet ﷺ see Allah or not? You know, or did he see him in a dream or did he see light? Or, you know, these, there, were, there were some very, very small, very small number of issues which the companions differed over, which would, could be considered to be within the realm of Aqidah. But overwhelmingly, the companions were unanimous in their belief. What happened? Firstly, Islam spread outwards. As Islam spread outwards, the number of people converting to Islam became large. Okay? All these people converting to Islam. All of these people are converting to Islam from other religions. Now, not only are all of these people converting to Islam, but as time goes by, the companions are becoming fewer and fewer and more and more spread out. Because the Islamic empire is growing, so the companions are becoming more spread out. 
and their numbers are becoming smaller and smaller as they pass away due to age, due to battles and so on. What that caused is it caused the introduction of matters of aqidah that were not from the sunnah of the Prophet They were from other religions or misguided notions either from the munafiqeen or from the Christians or the Jews or from the the, the, the dualists, those who believed, like the Magians who believed in, who believed in two gods, the god of light and the god of dark. And, you know, they were introduced from these, these concepts and they became, or Greek philosophy, and they became mixed up with Islam. When did this happen? The beginning of deviation in Aqidah began at the time of the companions, radiallahu ta'ala anhum, yani while some of them were still alive. Because you have the hadith in Sahih Muslim, we're going to come to it, which is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar regarding deviancy in Qadr. If you see them, tell them that I am free from them and they're free from me. Tell them I have nothing to do with them and they have nothing to do with me. Meaning that deviancy in the belief in the divine decree happened during the lifetime of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma. The Khawarij during the lifetime of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu and the beginnings of them in the time of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu So especially towards the later part or the latter part of the, the age of the companions, these innovations began to creep up. When the companions passed away, these innovations became more and more and more and more until sometimes they became even the majority. Like with what happened, or they became the, if not the majority, they became the, the, the one that was, was in charge, the one that was running, you know, the one that was the standard. And even the majority in times. Like what happened, as we said in the mihna of the, the Qur'an, the testing regarding the Qur'an. And the official state position was that the Qur'an is created. And only a handful of people remained telling the people the Qur'an is the speech of Allah and it's uncreated. So the situation got very, very bad. And so the people used to identify the Muslim who is upon the truth by certain points of belief. It's narrated from Aisha radiallahu anha that when a woman came to her asking her a question, she said, she said, are you from the Khawarij? And he looked at how the companions even began to ask certain questions. They began to ask certain questions about people. What do you believe? What's your, what do you believe about this particular issue? Or when they heard a particular issue, they would say, are you from this group? Are you from this people who believe this? So these issues here, are matters that usually are mentioned to refute a group of people who came about with a deviancy going away from what the Prophet ﷺ taught. And so the scholars of Islam, they clarified these points and highlighted them because in their time, these were the points that defined a person as being from the Sunnah. And he believes that Iman goes up and down. 
he believes that the Sahaba are the best of the people after the messengers. He believes that Qadr, he believes in the Qadr of Allah, the good of it and the bad of it. And so on and so forth. These were the matters that basically excluded people from being from these deviant groups. And so these kind of points were there to basically say, if you can tick these points in that time, then you are from the people of the Sunnah. The people who are following the way of the Prophet ﷺ in what he believed and what he taught his companions. And as we said, it's not an exclusive list. As times change, new issues come up and they can be, you know, they are dealt with in other books and, and in, you know, as time goes by. But at least this provides you an insight of the matters that were considered to be fundamental to the Tabi'un, the generation who came after the companions and those who followed them. And it's not narrated from one person. It's narrated from 90 people. And in these points, we heard 90 of the, of the scholars of Islam at the time of the Tabi'un teach the people that this is what the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ in terms of the beliefs the Prophet ﷺ died upon. So the first one that they mentioned, الأخذ بما أمر الله به والانتهاء عما نهى الله عن Doing what Allah Azza wa Jal commanded you to do and refraining from what Allah Azza wa Jal commanded you to refrain from. Or before that, we have a one before that. الرضا بقضاء الله عز وجل والتسليم لأمره والصبر على حكمه Number one, being content with the decree of Allah Azza wa Jal. Submitting to His commands and being patient upon His rulings. Being content with Qadr, and there are two points uh, about Qadr in this, in, this, uh, in this treatise. The reason there are two points about Qadr in this treatise is because Qadr was one of the first deviancies to be known. Deviancy in the decree, what people believed about Allah's decree. This was one of the first deviancies to be known about in the history of Islam. And one of the first things that appeared, one of the first innovations that appeared in Aqeedah related to the matter of Al-Qadr wal-Qadha. And so two of these points relate to Qadr and Qadha. The first one mentions Al-Ridha bi Qadha Illahi Azza wa Jal. Being content with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees. First of all, we should understand, and, and we don't have a massive amount of time to do it, but we'll just go over some really fundamental points that relate to Al-Qadr, Wal-Qadha, the decree of Allah Azza wa Jal. We just go over some, some, some really basic principles. The first principle with regard to the Qadr of Allah is that the Qadr of Allah is in four parts. It relates to four things. 
Number one, that Allah Azza wa Jal knows everything. Allah knows everything. He knows what has passed. He knows what will happen. He knows what is happening. So he knows past, present, future. He knows what would happen if it were to happen in a different way. So he knows what would happen if there was a God besides him. Even though there can never be a God besides him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran what would happen if there were gods besides him. So he knows the possible and the impossible. He knows the past, the present and the future. Number two, that Allah Azza wa Jal has written down everything that will happen until the day of judgment. Allah commanded the pen to write. The pen said, what shall I write? Allah said, write everything that will happen until the day of judgment. And that is not difficult for Allah Azza wa Jal because Allah knows everything. So if you know something, it's not difficult for you to write it down. If I ask you all, write down your name, does anyone struggle with that? Can anyone struggle to write down their name? No, you know your name, so you write your name. It's not, it's not difficult to understand. Allah Azza wa Jal knows everything, therefore, when he commanded the pen to write everything that will happen, the pen wrote it because Allah knows. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that this has already happened or that it is like, you know, uh, that it's like defeatist or something like that. What it means is that Allah wrote what will happen. That is just, just that, no more than that. Allah wrote everything that will happen. It's still, there are many things yet to happen, but Allah wrote them, they will happen as Allah Azza wa wrote. The third thing is that nothing happens in this universe except by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in this you must be careful of a point. You must be careful of a point. There is a difference between what Allah wills and what Allah loves. Allah only loves good. Allah does not love. Allah does not love disbelief. But Allah wills disbelief to happen for a wisdom. So distinguish between what He wills and what He loves. Nothing happens. Not a single speck of dust falls. Not a single plot is hatched by the enemies of Islam except that Allah Azza wa Jal decreed it and willed it to happen. Not just that he allowed it to happen, he willed it to happen subhanahu wa ta'ala for a wisdom that is with him. But there is a difference between what he wills and what he loves. He only loves that which is good. But he wills that which is good and that which is not for a wisdom that is with him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the fourth matter, that everything that happens in this universe whether objects which are created or actions, whether objects or actions happen by the creation of Allah Azza wa Jal. 
and there is no word, no object, no action that happens in this universe except that it is created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there is no creator for anything besides him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you can see these are in stages. Allah knows everything. Allah wrote everything. Allah wills everything that will happen. And Allah creates it. And Allah creates directly and indirectly. Allah creates directly and indirectly. Directly like he created Adam. Direct. And indirectly like he created you and me. We were not created directly. We were created indirectly. There was a process, there was, you know, there was a biological process of uh, the mother and the father which, and the baby and then the baby was born. But this is from the creation of Allah But it's the indirect creation. It's creation through something else. Creation through something else. In this, we must be careful of a number of things. First of all, we must be careful, as we said, distinguish between what Allah wills and what Allah loves. And secondly, we must be careful that our actions belong to us and we are responsible for them. We are not being forced to do what we do. We have a will, we have a, uh, we have the ability to make a decision. But our will cannot overcome the will of Allah. You cannot will something unless Allah wills it. Meaning, I decide today I'm going to finish this treatise with you. If Allah Azza wa Jal, that decision was mine. If Allah Azza wa Jal doesn't will me to finish it, I will not be able to finish it. And so hopefully this just gives you, you know, the most important issues with regard to qadr. With regard to guidance and misguidance, both come from Allah. Allah guides and Allah misguides. But He guides as a favor and a mercy. And He misguides out of justice and wisdom. His guidance is a favor and a mercy, and his misguidance is justice and wisdom. When you believe properly in Al-Qadr, it should motivate you to work harder, not to work less. Why? I'm just going to give you a brief summary of this. Why is it that when you believe in Qadr properly, you should be super motivated? The people who don't believe in Qadr properly, they're super lazy. They sit down and they say, well, if Allah wanted to guide me, he would have guided me. One answer, and it is many answers, but this is just the most important one. Qadr teaches you that everything is in the hands of Allah. Therefore, you are in desperate need of guidance from Allah because you cannot produce guidance for yourself. If you tried every means and every path and every book and every action to be guided, Wallahi, you will not be able to be guided in a single word that you say without Allah Without Allah decreeing it, without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creating it. Therefore, when you know your desperate need of Allah, you ask yourself, okay, what do I have to do for Allah to give me a good qadr, a good decree? And Allah told you, work hard. Those who strive for our, our cause, those who strive for our cause, 
جاهدوا فينا they strive for our cause لنهدينهم سبلنا we will guide them Allah said you work hard I'll take care of your qadr you're lazy and you'll get what was decreed for you which is you know your laziness has been written long ago but this is the right way to understand Qadr. The wrong way to understand Qadr is to be lazy. If you find that understanding Qadr makes you lazy, then wallah, you have not understood Qadr until now. And you need to go back. I have a lecture. If you search on YouTube, Muhammad Tim Qadr, you'll find a long, maybe two hour lecture, one hour and a half lecture, going into detail on these issues. However, just at a minimum, just as a, like, just to touch upon it, Qadr should make you so motivated to work. Because basically you realize that if Allah doesn't help you, you've had it. Because if Allah hasn't written good for you, and Allah hasn't written Jannah for you, you cannot get Jannah, no matter what you do. Therefore, you have to ask yourself, what would, have, what would I be able to do that would get Allah to help me in my Qadr? And the answer is work hard. Because if you work hard, Allah will guide you. And the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba said to the Prophet ﷺ, shall we not rely upon this? Should we not just one of us not just say this is our decree? The Prophet ﷺ told them, no, work, work, for, work hard. Because every one of you, it will be made easy for him what he was created for. Meaning if you are working hard, Jannah will be made easy for you. And if you are lazy, Jahannam will be made easy for you. So work hard and leave Qadr to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what is meant by a taslim, submission to Qadr. Leave it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one more point I will mention, husnul dhan billah. Having good thoughts of Allah. Having good thoughts of Allah is essential. Do not think Allah has decreed for me Jahannam, Allah has decreed for me that I'm going to be from the worst of the people, Allah will never give me Jannah. Wallahi, you will find Allah as you, as you think of Him. As in the hadith Qudusi that Allah said, Ana inda dhanni abdi bi. I am as my slave thinks of me. You think good of Allah, you'll find Allah to be as you think of Him. Allah decrees a calamity for you. And you say, inshallah, this calamity is good for me. Whatever you've decreed for me, Allah, I know you will never decree for me something which is bad for me. I trust this decree will be good for me, however it is. So give me contentment. Submitting to the decree of Allah Azza wa Having sabr upon the decree of Allah Azza wa What Allah decrees for you requires sabr. Allah wants to test you to see whether you're going to be patient, whether you're going to disbelieve. So he puts you through trials and hardships. Allah told he will test us with something with a loss of fruits, money, risk, life, wealth. And give glad tidings to those who are patient when these things happen. Those who when they are afflicted with a calamity, they say, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. 
Or they say, La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. These words that mean, Oh Allah, this is in your hands, not in my hands. Those are the ones who are going to have salawat. They're going to have, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to bless them. Allah is going to mention them to the angels. Allah azza wa jal is going to forgive them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to give them guidance. They are the guided. And in this there is a, a hadith. And this hadith is in Sunan al-Nasai. Number is 1305. Sometimes I have references, sometimes I don't. This one I have. 1305 in Sunan al-Nasai. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and it's a long hadith, but I'll just give you the, the shahid, the, the point of it. That the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to ask, وَأَسْأَلُكَ الرِّضَى بَعْدَ الْقَضَاءِ Oh Allah, I ask you for contentment when you decree something for me. And that is because our behavior towards the decree of Allah is of different levels. The first level is that you admit that the qadr, it is the qadr of Allah. You say, qadr Allah wa ma This is the qadr of Allah. Then you submit to it, a taslim, you submit to it. Or first you submit to it and then you have patience. Perhaps that is a better way of putting it. You submit that it's the qadr of Allah. You have taslim. You say, qadr Allah wa ma It's the decree of Allah. He does what he wants. You know, this is the decree of Allah. What can I do? The second level is that you remain patient. So you don't get angry. You don't say, oh Allah, why have you done this to me? What did I do to deserve this? You don't say those words. You never say why with regard to qadr. Okay? And the third level and the highest level and the one that is the hardest is a rida You become content. Someone from your family passes away, you don't feel any anger or any upset. You say, whatever Allah decreed for them and for me will be best. Allah forgive them and forgive me. I'm content with what happened. And contentment in the face of calamities is extremely hard to achieve. So that covers those points that I mentioned. Cover al-rida ba'd al-qada, contentment, and it covers al-iman bil qadri khairihi wa sharri. Of course, we have the evidence for uh, we have the evidence for that. In Kitab al-Iman in Sahih Muslim, and the hadith is number eight, which is the famous hadith of Jibreel, the long hadith in which Jibreel came to teach the companions their religion. So in this hadith, we have the the belief in qadr wa an tu'mina bil qadri khayrihi wa sharrih. And this entire hadith was noted and mentioned for the sake of proving that qadr is a part of iman why because there came two groups and briefly we'll note them down one group was known as the qadariyyah and one group as the jabariyyah one group as the qadariyyah from qadr qadariyyah and one group as the jabariyyah the qadariyyah they said there is no qadr the matter is random you know there's no decree Everything happens at random. It's just totally random. 
And so Ibn Umar said, if you meet them, tell them that I have nothing to do with them and they have nothing to do with me. Wallahi, if one of them gave the mountain of Uhud in gold, it would not be accepted from him until he believes in Qadr. And then he mentioned the hadith of Jibreel in its entirety for the purpose of proving that belief in Qadr is essential to the belief of a Muslim. The Jabariyyah, they went to the other side. They said, you have no will. You are a robot. Just moving to the commands of Allah and literally you have no will, no choice. Allah has condemned you to Jahannam for no reason and put you in Jannah for no reason. That's the essence of what they say. And so they, uh, they applied zulm to, yani they said that Allah, they applied oppression to Allah Because effectively they are saying that Allah condemns you based on something you haven't done. And that whether you pray or you don't pray, you can't do anything. You know, like there's no, you pray, you don't pray, you do anything, you don't like, all of it is the same. And there are many groups followed them in this. Among them the Asha'ira and the Maturidiyya, who are, who are in themselves Jabariya, in themselves they are Jabariya in their belief. The well-known, yani the, the Muntashir belief, the famous belief, which is yani very, very famous among the Muslims. There is a sect known as the Asha'ira and their cousins, the Maturidiyya. And both of them are Jabariya in their belief. Both of them essentially believe that everything you do is, you're just a puppet on the stage except for something they call kesb and they don't know what it is. So we'll leave that to, to the right. So this is, uh, you know, something very important in terms of our belief. Very, very important. That we neither sit with the Jabariya nor with the Qadariya. We sit in the middle. We say we have a will, but our will is under the will of Allah. None of us can overcome the will of Allah. If Allah wants to misguide you, you can't guide yourself. But Allah has given you a fair opportunity to work for Jannah as, you know, as much as He has given you the ability to do so. And that there is a qadr and a decree and there is a will for the servants of Allah but the will for the servants of Allah is completely subservient to the will of Allah. That was the belief of Ahl sunnah And that is why it was mentioned in the treaties. To say we are not from the Qadariya, nor are we from the Jabariya. Notice that one of them came about running away from the other. I'm sure the Jabariya most likely came about running away from the Qadariya. They said, no, 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 you can't say there's no Qadr. We're all robots, you know, like leaves in the wind. We're just, you know, like... Everything we do is scripted, actors in a movie, you know, everything you do is scripted and there is no chance for you to change, you know, or to, you know, earn any good or you're condemned based on what Allah has written for you in this script to happen. And they did that running away from the Qadariya. And you see this in many things, you see in, in many, many, many things, in almost every deviancy in Aqidah, there was a group who ran away from the other ones. The Asha'ira came about running away from the Mu'tazila. So each one as they run away from each other, they, came, they fell into the same thing that their friends fell into before. 
So you stay in the middle upon the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu As for doing what Allah commanded and refraining from what the Prophet Sallallahu and Allah forbade, and we have many, 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 uh, many evidences for that. Among them uh, is the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. مَا نَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْهُ فَاجْتَنِبُوهُ وَمَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ فَأْتُوا مِنْهُ مَسْتَطَعْتُمْ What I forbid you from, keep away from it. And what I tell you to do, do as much of it as you can. And from this is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal. وَأَطِيعُ اللَّهَ وَأَطِيعُ الرَّسُولِ Obey Allah and obey the Messenger. And the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal. وَمَا أَتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُ Whatever the Messenger gives you, take it. Whatever he forbids you from, abstain from it. And the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal. فَلْيَحْذَرِ الَّذِينَ يُخَالِفُونَ عَنْ أَمْرِهِ أَنْ تُصِيبَهُمْ فِتْنَةً أَوْ يُصِيبَهُمْ عَذَابٌ let them take a warning, those people who oppose the messenger, lest they be afflicted by a trial or a severe punishment. So we've covered those, uh, those points, inshallah. The next point that is mentioned, leaving, quarreling, and arguing in matters of the religion. This is very, a very, very interesting point. Because we have to put some dawabit, some rules and regulations here. Because if we don't put any rules and regulations here, we have a problem with the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَجَادِلْهُمْ أَحْسَنْ Argue with them in the way that is best. Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَجَادِلْهُمْ أَحْسَنْ This is in Surah Al-Nahl, I think, ayah number 125. أَحْسَنْ argue with them in the way that is best. At the same time, the Quran mentions so many examples of people arguing in a blameworthy way. So in Surah, uh, for example, uh, Surah uh, Al-Hajj, for example, ayah number 68, Allah Azza wa said, وَإِن جَادَلُوكَ فَقُلِ اللَّهُ أَعْلَمُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ if they argue with you, then say Allah knows best about what it is that you do. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَلَا تُجَادِلُوا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنْ Do not argue with the people of the book except in the way that is best. And many, many, many ayat. There are many, many ayat. Allah Azza wa Jal said, أَلَمْ تَرَ إِلَى الَّذِينَ يُجَادِلُونَ فِي آيَاتِ اللَّهِ أَنَّا يُصْرَفُونَ is in Surah Ghafir, ayah number 69. Do you see those people who argue about the ayat of Allah, how they have been deluded, how they have been taken away from the truth? So there is no doubt, and again the famous ayah in, uh, in Surah Al-Kahf, ayah number 22. 
فلا تماري فيهم إلا مراء ظاهرة Do not quarrel with them except with a clear proof And there are many, many ayat. So, how do we understand this in the right way? Quarreling and arguing without knowledge is no doubt one of the big, one of the major sins and one of the major causes of calamities among the people. There are several narrations of examples where the companions quarreled and the Prophet ﷺ became angry and his face became red in response to the quarreling that happened. You know, just quarreling or arguing for the sake of arguing. That is not a person convincing somebody with clear evidence, but a person arguing, even when they are right. The Prophet ﷺ said, I guarantee a house in the surroundings of paradise for a man who avoids quarreling even if he is right. In Abi Dawood, hadith number 4800. And there are many, many narrations uh, from the companions, uh, from those who came after them regarding leaving quarreling and argumentation. And the meaning of that is quarreling for the sake of quarreling or quarreling for the sake of proving that you are right, or quarreling without knowledge. All of these are blameworthy kinds of quarreling. As for the argumentation which is praiseworthy, it is to clearly put forth your evidences without ta'asub, without being, you know, without being um, partisan and having this like, I, I'm right and I'm not going to listen to anybody else. You put forward your evidences with knowledge and as much as is needed to convey, the, to convey the message to the person. But not that you argue for the sake of arguing. There is no such praise for debates in Islam. You know, Islam it doesn't praise debates. Sometimes debates are necessary. Sometimes debates are necessary. But that's the exception rather than the rule. The general rule is we don't debate and we don't argue and we don't quarrel with people and say you have a chance to say and I have a chance to say and let's have jidal and mira let's have a let's have an argument about it only with a clear evidence and a clear proof you put your point across so in general we don't debate there are times when we have to debate in order to clarify a particular issue or when a person has you know like the people like like Musa with the magicians alayhi salam when there's a need to show the person, you know, to take the person down in front of everybody because of the, the, the stage that they have reached. But in general, our basic position is we don't debate. How many times is narrated people coming to the Imams of Islam, an example, came to one of the Imams of Islam wanting to debate about an issue. He said, I know my religion. If you have lost your religion, go and look for it. I have nothing to debate with you about. I don't have no interest in debating with you about Qadr or debating with you about this or debating with you about that. I tell you the truth. If you want to take it, take it. If you don't want to take it, don't take it. But I'm not going to sit there and tolerate you to come here and, and discuss and debate with me and you talk and I talk and we. 
You know, we have this debate going, except when there's a key reason to do it. Likewise, arguing among each other for no reason. You know, you pick a mas'ala, especially when there's no fa'idah, there's no, there's no fruit, there's no benefit from it. Like the people used to argue about the one who breaks wind in a plastic bag and opens the bag. Does his wudu break when he breaks wind or when he opens the bag? This is kalam, yani, like they say, kalam fadi. Yani it has no, it's just a complete waste of time. You are sitting there arguing over something that has no reality to it. And wallahi, this is from the signs of the philosophers and the mutakallimun. And if you want to know the essence of philosophy and ilmul kalam, oh, these are another deviant group which appeared who translated Greek philosophy into Arabic. And since then they have been causing us calamities since that day. They translated Greek philosophy into Arabic. The biggest sign of them is that they, all of their speech has no benefit to it at all. It's complete hot air. They talk about points of Islam, points of knowledge that have no practical application ever. And they enjoy to debate and argue and, you know, present. And that's why they're called mutakallimun, people of kalam, people of rhetoric. Because they love to present these issues of, these issues that have no thamara, they have no fruit. If you hear the people of the Sunnah talking about Islam, every point has an action, every point has a benefit. You hear the mutakallimun talking about things, which is it first obligatory to do? Is it first obligatory to think? Or is it first obligatory to act? Or is it first obligatory to believe? I mean, it has no practical application in anything. It's completely, what's the word? Theoretical, completely hypothetical. It has no real action at all. In reality, you say, La ilaha illallah, you become a Muslim. Or is it obligatory to doubt la ilaha illallah before you believe in la ilaha illallah? These are the philosophers. And they have nothing to do except to come up with masail that have no thamarat, they have no fruit, no action, no good, no implementation, just complete waste of time. And that is why when we come to usul al-fiqh, you will see that there is a great need to take a razor blade and cut out pages from books of usul al-fiqh. Because these books are full of ilm al-kalam. Like al-Ghazali and others. Yani full of ilm al-kalam. Full of masail that if you learnt them and acted upon them, they would never benefit you until yawm al-Qiyamah. They have no application. They are hypothetical. They are completely imaginary. What is had al-had? What's the limit of a limit? Really? What's the limit of a limit of a limit? Does a limit have a limit? What about if a limit has a limit? Does it have a limit? Really? Yani pick up, yani don't pick it up, but yani if you were to pick up Ihya Ulum al-Din yani by al-Ghazali, this is what you find. Ilm al-Kalam. And yes, there are benefits in it, in the work of al-Ghazali and others. There are benefits. But you need to take a razor blade and cut out the Ilm al-Kalam. Because all of it is just... Jidal and Mira arguing about something that has no benefit, nothing in it at all. You see, okay, if I know the limit of a limit of a limit, what do I do with it? 
Really, what should I do with it? How is it going to make my prayer better? How is it going to make my rulings better? How is it going to make my fiqh better? It's not. It's arguing for the purpose of showing that I have an understanding that you don't have. And this is the essence of ilm al-kalam. Arguing about something that has no benefit in it whatsoever. Just kalam. And that is why there is consensus from among the early imams of Islam that everyone who engages in ilm al-kalam has lost. And it's narrated from Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, from Malik, from al-Shafi'i. Have a look at the statements of the likes of Abu Hanifa about the one who engages in ilm al-kalam. Look now at the madhab of Abu Hanifa. Sadly, it's been mixed by al-Ghazali and others and it became ilm al-kalam. They used to say the one who involves in ilm al-kalam will never prosper. Al-Ghazali rahimahullah in his own end of his life repented from this ilm al-kalam that he was involved in. And he said that it was no good and he wished I can die upon the aqeedah of just a regular person from the people of the sunnah. Because they recognized that all of it brought them nothing. It didn't bring them khushu' in the prayer. It didn't bring them nearer to Allah. It didn't bring them beneficial knowledge. It just filled books, volumes, and pages. So this is something that the scholars unanimously condemned. And the only people who praised it are the people who came later on. Now they came later on, they said, wow, this is amazing. This is the real knowledge, you know. The Muslims, we, we define what the limit of a limit of a limit is, you know. We, we reach the, the pinnacle of knowledge. This is not knowledge. If it were knowledge, the Prophet ﷺ would have taught it. The companions would have taught it. The Imams would have taught it. Abu Hanifa would have taught it. Malik would have taught it. Al-Shafi'i would have taught it. Ahmed would have taught it. But instead, none of them taught it. The only people who taught it are the people who knew more about Greek than they knew about the Qur'an. And they thought that Aristotle was a very clever guy and Plato and... And all of it is a waste of time. So we leave all kinds of argumentation we leave all kinds of debate. We leave all kinds of wasteful speech. And we argue with evidences from the Quran and the Sunnah. We put our point across. Whoever wants to take it can take it. Whoever doesn't want to take it doesn't have to take it. We put our point across in truth. And we don't wait to give the other person, you know, like, okay, now it's your turn to tell me about what you believe. I'm going to tell you what I believe. I'm going to give you my points. I'm going to give you the benefit that I have. And if you want to take it, take it. Whatever's right from it, take it. Whatever's wrong from it, leave it. The next point is interesting. Wiping over the khuf. Hold on a second. That's not aqeedah. Why did wiping over the khuf end up in a book of aqeedah? Very important point. There are some issues of fiqh mentioned in books of aqeedah because the opinions in those matters of fiqh distinguished between the people of sunnah and the people of bid'ah. Meaning that the people who do not wipe over the khuf, it was known that if you don't wipe over the khuf, then this means you belong to a certain sect. Like now, you can say, if you see a person wiping over their bare foot, know that he is rafidi. He is Shi'i, and he straight away, you know he is Shi'i. As soon as you see him wiping over his bare feet, instead of no sock, and he doesn't wash his feet, he wipes over his bare feet, khalas, rafidi. You know, you know instantly that he is Shi'i. It's a fiqh issue. 
Should you wipe over your foot or wash your foot or wipe over your sock or your leather sock or your cotton sock? These are fiqh issues. But there are some fiqh issues that the position in them was so clear between Ahl sunnah and Ahlul Bid'ah that they became in books of Aqeedah. And one of them is wiping over the, wiping over the khuf. There's another point in this. Somebody might say, but isn't it narrated from some of the imams of Islam, from Ahl sunnah the likes of Abu Hanifa and others, isn't it narrated from some of them some disagreement over wiping over the khuf? We say that it, there can be times when an imam of Ahl sunnah makes a mistake. There can be times, especially we're going to come to the issue of Iman. There can be times when an Imam of Ahl Sunnah makes a mistake. But he was known for his belief in the Sunnah and for his love of the Sunnah and so on and so on. And therefore, one mistake that a person makes doesn't take them outside of being from Ahl Sunnah. And a mistake that was based on genuine effort. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, all of the four Madahib agreed upon wiping over the Khuf by, you know, once the matter settled down. The, the four madahib, all of them agree upon the permissibility of wiping over the khuf. But it's known that there are certain groups who do not wipe over the khuf. And that, the, that wiping over the leather socks became a sign of a person being from the sunnah. Yes, the scholars differed over cotton, they differed over, you know, woolen socks. But leather socks, unanimously, they agreed upon wiping over them such that if you saw a person say I don't wipe over the leather socks you knew that we belong to a certain sect and that's the reason why it's included in the book of Aqidah there are certain fiqh issues that when you see somebody doing them you know that this person belongs to a deviant belief even though it's a fiqh issue you know that they belong to a deviant to a deviant belief the next point the next point we're gonna we're gonna uh, join together a couple of points uh, together. Uh, this one is Al-Jihadu Ma'a Kulli Khalifatin Barrun Al-Fajir That Jihad is performed with every Khalifa, every ruler of the Muslims, whether he is pious or whether he is wretched, whether he is you know like wicked, whether he's good or bad. And add to that, which is a point which comes after it وَالصَّبَرُ تَحْتَ لِوَاءِ السُّلْطَانِ عَلَى مَا كَانَ فِيهِ مِنْ عَدْلٍ أَوْ جَوْرٍ وَأَنْ لَا نَخْرُجْ that we have patience in obeying the ruler whether he is just or whether he is tyrannical whether he is just or whether he is, he is a tyrant and we do not rebel against him with the sword even if he behaves in a way that is tyrannical even if he oppresses us this is from the most fundamental beliefs and I'm not going to touch on it too much because we're going to cover it specifically in, in the fourth week in a lot of detail. But one of the fundamental beliefs that distinguishes people who follow the Prophet ﷺ from people who have deviated is obedience to the ruler. The Prophet ﷺ gave so many ahadith and we, we're going to take it in full detail inshallah regarding obedience to the one in authority, even if he is a tyrant, even if he steals your wealth, even if he oppresses you, even if he behaves in an evil way towards you, even if he is fajr, doing major sins, drinking alcohol, committing zina, carrying out riba, 
we hear and we obey in that which Allah has commanded us to do. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu ati'u Allah wa ati'u rasul wa ulil amri minkum. All you who believe, obey Allah and obey his messenger and those in authority over you. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told us, وُسِيكُمْ بِتَقْوَى اللَّهِ I advise you to have taqwa of Allah. وَالسَّمْعَ وَالطَّاعَ And that you hear and obey your ruler. وَإِنْ تَأَمَّرَ عَلَيْكُمْ عَبْدٍ Even if a slave is in charge over you. In some ahadith it's mentioned, uh, an Ethiopian slave. And in the most, even if the, you know, the, even if the worst of you is in charge of you. Even if he beats your back and takes your wealth. You hear and you obey. The question is, why? The question is, why? For two reasons. First of all, that major sins do not take a person outside of Islam. What takes a person outside of Islam, we will cover in the topic of takfir. But major sins do not take a person outside of the religion of Islam. And therefore, the fact that the ruler does a major sin does not make him kafir. The fact that he deals in riba, the fact that he drinks alcohol, the fact that he commits zina, it does not make him kafir. Therefore, there is no uh, rebellion against a person who remains a Muslim. That's the first point. The second point is, if you look at the history of rebellion, from the time of even the rebellions that happened at the time of the Sahaba, and then later on Ibn al-Ash'ath, and later on the rebellions that happened throughout history, there is a statement of Ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala, he said, there is almost no group which ever rebelled against a person in authority except that they caused more harm than the good that they brought. And there is no doubt about that. If you study history and you look at the rebellions, even the rebellions that happened at the time of the Sahaba, among Ibn Zubayr and Al-Hussein ibn Ali radiallahu anhum, and their rebellions were not like the rebellions of the later people. And they had a justification, they had an evidence for what they did. But still it brought no good. Did what Al-Hussein did, did it bring any good for the Muslims? Didn't bring any good for the Muslims. And that's why the Sahaba united against the decision of Al-Hussein to, to, to go to Iraq. And Ibn Abbas said, if it were not to, that it would degrade us, I would have held on to you. I would have clung on to you to stop you from going. And Ibn Umar said, I fear that I will not see you again. I feel that I am saying goodbye to you for the last time. The Sahaba united upon not going. Even though this was not even a rebellion. But even these, these things from the time of the Sahaba until the proper rebellions that happened later, Wallahi, not a single one of them ended in any good. They ended in the slaughter of the Muslims. They ended in the spilling of blood. Because naturally, as the first point mentions, the Sultan is the one who has the matter of jihad in his hand. He has an army, he has weapons, he has, you know, power. When Muslims rebel against him, what happens? He uses his army, he uses his weapons, he uses his power, he slaughters the people, the blood flows in the streets. Did anyone get any better? Did they bring a Sultan afterwards who was better than the one that they got rid of? La Go through the history, go through Ibn al-Ash'ath. In Ibn al-Ash'ath's rebellion, and it was a full rebellion against al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf uh, and others, 
in Ibn al-Ash'at's rebellion, over a hundred thousand of the reciters of the Qur'an and the people of knowledge and the scholars were slaughtered. It's narrated in some wordings that Al-Hajjaj hung their heads on every tree from Al-Basra to Al-Kufa. Did it bring the Muslims any good? Nothing. Was Al-Hajjaj a good person? We leave his matter to Allah Azza wa Jal. But Al-Hajjaj was a tyrant. Al-Hajjaj was a person who killed, he killed some of the Sahaba. He was very, very tyrannical. He was very, very oppressive. And yet when they rebelled against him, it brought them nothing. And that is why the scholars of Islam, the people who from the, the people of that time, they were unanimous upon not rebelling because it brought them nothing. Look at the situation in Algeria before some time, a few decades ago, rebelled against the Islamic party, whatever came, and then they got kicked out by the previous people and then they rebelled against them. When they rebelled against them, the people that were slaughtered, wallah, until this day, people from that country remember the slaughter of the Muslims. The blood that flew in the, you know, that flowed in the street. And they brought someone worse afterwards. The one that they brought after the rebellion was worse than the one that they tried to remove the first time. And that is why Ibn Taymiyyah said, there is almost no group that ever rebelled against anyone in authority except that they brought worse than what they sought to remove. And that is why from the fundamental beliefs against the belief of the Khawarij, the Khawarij are the sect that believe that your major sins take you outside of Islam. They are the sect who say the Muslim rulers are kuffar. They are the sect who say that we should rebel and we should rise up and so on and so forth. And all of their sub-splinter groups, the Ikhwan and all of their, the people who followed their methodology, all of them are the same in this. And all of them go against the fundamental agreement from the time of Imam Ahmed and before the time of Imam Ahmed, from the time of the Tabi'een that we do not rebel against the one in authority even if he is the biggest tyrant. So how about if he is kind to you and he allows you to have Islamic classes and he doesn't mind if you call the people to Islam? This person is even less deserving of being rebelled against and being spoken against when they facilitate things for you. So ultimately, this is something we're gonna cover in week four in detail because this is from the Masail that have destroyed the the people in our times especially with what's going on around the world around in the last the last 50 years and all of the you know the 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 problems that are happening today we need to know these masail we need to know the dalil we need to know the ayat we need to know the hadith because wallahi it's people's children who are getting up and going to these places and killing themselves and killing the muslims and causing fitna in the earth it's people's own children we need to know these issues, we need to know the evidences, and we need to be very, very mutamakkin, very, very qualified in dealing and refuting and replying to these issues. Because the khawarij, they have shubahat, they have issues they will bring, doubts they will bring, ah yes, but this we agree. Because they will not say they disagree with Imam Ahmed, they will say no, no, we agree. But this was said about a pious ruler, not about a bad ruler. Okay, it says here, even if he is a tyrant, they say, okay, yeah, we agree, we agree, okay, tyrant. But that was said about a Muslim tyrant, not a Kafir tyrant. And so on and so on and so on. They will keep going and going and going. So inshallah, in the fourth week of this subject, we will cover their arguments in detail and we'll cover how to respond to their arguments, inshallah. 
because this for me is a major thing and I think if we're not teaching this to people ultimately this is one of the major fitan of our time this is a fitna in our time the fitna of the khawarij they've come back up they have a resurgence in our time the khawarij and the takfiriyun the people who declare the Muslims to be kuffar and the people who speak about the rulers and the people who rebel and the people who declare the people who do the major sins to be kuffar they, they have a lot of precedence in this time uh, and they have a lot of speech on YouTubes and you know Facebooks and whatever which is confusing the Muslims so we have to you know highlight this issue and go in some detail but this is a basic principle that we understand that jihad is a matter of the ruler it's the ruler's decision who he goes to war with, right? That's been the case in every country in the world in the history of mankind. I mean, I, I don't, sometimes the Muslims with their, you know, they, they bring something new, you know, they bring something new, you know, like that has never been seen before. This has been known by every country and every society and every civilization since the beginning of time. That the guy who's in charge, he's the guy who decides when you go to war and when you have peace. And he's the guy who decides who's in the army and who's not. And he's the guy who decides who the army attacks and who they don't. Fundamental principle, because if you don't have that organization, what you end up with, you end up with what has happened in the world today, with innocent people being killed, with Muslims being slaughtered, with a loss of safety, a loss of uh, security in the society, because the person who is organizing is not the one who has the, the sulta or the power, is not the sultan. And the Sultan is the one who has the authority in terms of these issues. And you leave these issues to him. He will be asked by Allah Azza wa Jal. If he should have declared war on somebody and he didn't, he will be asked by Allah. But it's not your concern. Your concern is to give advice privately in the way that is best. And that is it. Everything else is that is the decision of the Wali Al-Amr. It's his decision. Matters of Jihad, matters of Hajj. Some of the, in Usul Al-Sunnah it's mentioned that al-hajj and al-jihad are with the wali al-amr until yawm al-qiyamah meaning that who organizing the hajj pilgrimage you know who's going who's not how is it going to be following the the wali al-amr in the hajj that's something which is established you know it's not for everybody to just make their own uh, to make their own system the wali al-amr has the right to organize for example the hajj as we see there is like a ministry and they organize the hajj and likewise matters of armies and fighting and so on are matters that are given to the one in authority or the one who he gives the authority to so he himself may not lead the army he may give it to his general his head of the army his head of the marine force head of the air force and he will give like responsibilities but it's his authority that tells them what to do and it's not for any muslim individually to take these matters into their own hands that we pray over whoever dies from the people of the Qibla. Uh, again, this is a refutation of the Khawarij. This is a refutation of the Khawarij. And there are a number of, you can see points here, refuting the Khawarij. This is one of the, the, the points that whoever dies from the Muslims, we pray over them. We pray a janazah for them. Regardless of the sins that they've done, we pray a janazah over them. Yes, it may be the case that the most noble people of the society may 
avoid a janazah of somebody who was had a particular evil like the Prophet ﷺ used to refuse to pray the janazah of the person who had a debt it's permissible for for example if there is a person who was very evil and did a lot of evil in society uh, it's permissible for the Imam of the Masjid to say I'm not gonna pray his janazah but his janazah should be prayed by the people there was a case in America of a man who killed a police officer he wore women's uh, woman's uh, you know, niqab and hijab, and he killed a police officer. And the masjid, and I don't know the masjid or the people, but I remember reading it in the news. There was a big scene because the masjid refused to do the janazah. What the masjid said was, we will arrange for the janazah, but we will not hold the janazah in the masjid with the imam in order that we send a signal to people that this is not acceptable. This kind of action is not acceptable. But we will arrange the janazah. This is permissible. This is permissible, it's not haram for the scholar or for the imam or for the, the waliul amr, the ruler of the Muslims to say that I'm not going to pray this person's janazah as a sign to those who come after them of you know, what has been done. However, the janazah is prayed. The janazah is prayed over the people of the qibla regardless of their sins. If they are still Muslim and there is no evidence that they have left Islam, then we pray their janazah regardless of what state they were in. And this is a refutation of the Khawarij who say that the major sins take you outside of Islam. We can add to that, there's another point, I'm just, I'm just moving through the order to gather the Masail together so we don't run out of time. We do not make takfir of anyone from the people of Tawheed, the people of Islam, even if they commit the major sins. Uh, again, we're going to talk about takfir in detail, but I'll just give you a, a summary of it. Again, takfir is of two types. There is a takfir that is mashru' and a takfir which is muharram. There is a takfir which is a part of Islam and a takfir which is haram. The takfir which is a part of Islam is found in the Quran. لَقَدْ كَفَرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ ثَالِثُ ثَلَاثِ Disbelieved are those people who say that Allah is, is one of three, for example, or three, the third out of three. The Qur'an makes takfir of people. The Qur'an says he is kafir, he is kafir, the one who says this is kafir. The Prophet ﷺ made takfir of people. But that takfir, it has rules and regulations and limits. Number one, the most important thing you remember about takfir is that takfir is from the matters that are left to the major scholars and not from the matters that the ordinary people get involved in. Especially takfir of major figures in society like the ruler or like the scholar or like the person of knowledge or the person of respect. These are very serious issues. They can cause blood to be spilt. They can cause the society to be lost. So these issues are left to the scholars of Islam, in general. Also from the important matters of takfir is the one mentioned here, that we do not make takfir based on the kabair. Somebody died drinking alcohol, if he died and he had prayed his five daily prayers and he you know, did what is required of a Muslim, then he's a Muslim, even if he died drinking alcohol. He may be punished, he may be forgiven. If Allah wills, he will forgive him. If Allah wills, He will punish him. He's deserving of punishment for drinking alcohol. He deserves to be punished. 
But if Allah wills, He will forgive him. And if Allah wills, He will punish him. We do not say that if he was from the people of Tawheed, we do not testify that he is in the hellfire forever. So this is important. And we're going to come to takfir, inshallah, in the, in the fourth week, as we said. Uh, we'll just uh, go back a little bit, a couple of points, to this issue of al-iman. Al-imanu qawlun wa'amal yazidu bil-ta'a wa yanqusu bil-ma'asiyah. This is a problem in, in these days because people have a little bit of a confusion about this. So we want to clarify. Iman is statement and action. It increases with obedience and decreases with sin. This is a refutation of another group. There's lots of groups here. This is a refutation of another group called the Murji'ah. And the Murji'ah were a group who said one of two different things. I mean, basically, there are a group who say, who remove actions from Iman. They say that your Iman is in, you know, Iman is in my heart. Iman is in my heart. And they made Iman a constant, meaning you, like a light switch. It's on or off. Ahlul Sunnah said Iman is a, a dimmer switch. It goes bright, it goes dim. It can go fully bright, it can switch off. It can go everywhere from off to full power and everywhere in between the murji'a they said no iman is on or off either you have full iman or you have no iman and they said that the iman of the prophet sallallahu and our iman is the same there is no difference in the iman between the prophet sallallahu and our iman and there is no difference in the iman of jibril and the iman of the worst of the muslims they said the Iman is the same, it's just a constant, it's on or it's off. Ahl sunnah agreed that Iman is statement and action. It increases and it decreases. Someone may say, but what about <coughs> Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik in some parts of the, the issue. Uh, Imam Al-Tahawi narrated from him his Aqeedah, from Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahmatullahi alayhim. There's no doubt that those, particularly Imam Abu Hanifa and those who followed him, had a mistake in this issue. And they said Iman does not go up or uh, down. And they, they misunderstood some of the ayat that relate to Iman. However, we said if a person is known for the Sunnah and calling to the Sunnah and loving the Sunnah, we don't take them out of the Sunnah because of a mistake that they made. It's a mistake. But we don't follow them in that mistake at the same time. And that is why in Aqeedah Tahawiyah, when an Imam Tahawi narrates the Aqeedah of Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he says that Iman doesn't increase or decrease. That Iman is a constant. And the scholars make a footnote and say this is not true. And this is against the consensus of Ahl Sunnah that Iman goes up and down. And that Iman is statement and action. And they make a footnote. They don't rip up Al Aqeedah Tahawiyah and say don't study it, don't learn it. We're going to study it ourselves in the class, inshallah. They don't say don't study it, don't learn it. Because they recognize that Imam Tahawi was an Imam of Islam. With generally the right aqidah, he had, a, he, had a, he had a mistake in this. And that's why we don't say Abu Hanifa was from the Murji'ah. We say that he was from Murji'atul Fuqaha. From the scholars of fiqh who fell into this issue. Not from the Murji'ah themselves. Because the Murji'ah are a deviant sect. So we don't say he was a deviant. We say that he fell into this issue. And he read the Qur'an, misunderstood 
some of the ayat and ahadith and fell into the issue. But we don't declare him to be from among the murji'ah, likewise Al-Imam Al-Tahawi and those who followed them in this issue. But we don't follow them in it. We don't say, yeah, because you know I follow. We don't follow them in it. We say Iman is statement and action. It increases and it decreases. It can increase until it is full and it can decrease until nothing is left. And the evidences for this in the Quran and the Sunnah are more than we, you know, more than we can have time to quote. From the evidences for this in the Quran is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ In the very beginning of the second juz of Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah will not cause your iman to be lost. What did Allah say this about? The salah. سَيَقُولُ السُّفَهَاء the ignorant people from the people. What made them change their qibla? Then Allah said, Allah will not cause your iman to be lost. I, Allah will not cause your salah to be lost. Even clearer than that, the hadith of the Prophet Iman has 60 or 70 something levels. The highest of which, La ilaha illallah. Saying La ilaha illallah. The lowest of which is removing something harmful from the road. And this is the consensus of Ahlul Sunnah. Nobody disagreed about this except for those handful of people who, those who came after them, pointed out their, their error in this. That Iman is statement and action, it increases and it decreases. It can increase by obedience until it is complete, and it can decrease by sin until there is nothing left of it. And we will come maybe to this in Aqeed al-Tahawiyyah. We will discuss it in much more detail because Al-Imam al-Tahawi will make this mistake and we will talk about why and what the evidences are and what the, on both sides. But it's enough for you now to know the agreement of Ahl-Sunnah is that Iman goes up and down. And likewise, even likewise Al-Imam Malik regarding Iman going down. You know, there is, an, there is some narrations that he said that Iman goes up but it doesn't go down. And, you know, various sort of confusions that existed. But once they had been clarified, there was agreement among uh, the scholars of Islam that Iman goes up and it goes down. It can go up until it is complete and down until there is nothing left. And that actions, good deeds increase Iman and bad deeds decrease Iman. The next point. Al-Qur'anu kalamullah. Munazzalun. So, the Qur'an is the speech of Allah. It was sent down upon the heart of the Prophet It is not created. This is one, again, a reputation of those people who said that the Qur'an was created. Now the people who said the Qur'an was created are of different levels. Some of them, from the Mu'tazila and some of the others, so the Ibadiyya and some of the others, they made the outright statement that the Qur'an is created in, you know, in every aspect. And then you have the Asha'ira and the Maturidiyya, who said that the Qur'an is created in one way and uncreated in another way. 
So they said the original Quran is like a constant which is with Allah and then the Quran that we have in our hands uh, and the Quran that we recite is created. And it's from the speech of Jibreel or it's from the speech of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That Jibreel or that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam translated the Quran that came from Allah and the Quran that we have is actually the translation of uh, or the, the expression of Jibreel or the expression of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa and the scholars of Islam unanimously condemned this. And they said the Quran is the speech of Allah. And if one of the mushrikun in the first page of Surah Tawbah, if one of the mushrikun seeks safety from you, give him safety until he hears the speech of Allah. Allah spoke to Musa with a clear speech. And so, Ahlul Sunnah, we do not say about the Quran that it is created or partially created. And sometimes you hear the Ashaira. There's a very funny audio clip of one of the Ashaira, one of their scholars trying to explain how the Quran is created and uncreated and getting himself in a bit of a mix up. Because he started by saying the Quran is uncreated. Then, when somebody asked him about it in some detail, he said, actually, no, really, the Quran is created and uncreated. And he tried to explain it and got himself. Uh, tied up but basically he said yeah the Quran is from Allah but the letters and the words and the sentences and the order and the recitation and the book and the mushaf and what was given to the Prophet all of it is from is not from Allah and that is complete falsehood Allah spoke with a speech that is understood Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent his speech to the Prophet Muhammad and the Prophet recited the speech of Allah someone may say but what about the issue of recitation? When I recite, isn't my, my voice created? We say here, be careful what you say. You know, in Aqidah, especially with these issues, be, have, you know, tadqiq, have diqqah, be, be very, very, very precise about what you say. Because you can say something that you are trying to explain the right thing and end up saying it the wrong, the wrong way. You know, like the people who say, my recitation is created. And what do you mean by that? Like, explain your meaning. The words that you recite, and the best way of saying it is the way that the Salaf used to say. The sound, any the voice, is the voice of the reciter. When Mishari Rashid recites the Quran, it's Mishari Rashid reciting the Quran, it's not anybody else. But what he is reciting is the kalam of Allah Azza wa Uncreated, from, it, it, he, he, it, from him it began and to him it will return. So this is with regard to the issue of the, of the Qur'an. We have uh, one more uh, issue to cover inshaAllah ta'ala in the last five minutes, uh, which is in the last three or four points. And again, we're going to come back to these issues of the Qur'an, of you know, inshallah, as we go to al aqid al-Tahawiyah, we will cover, inshallah, many of these issues. But we just want to kind of summarize many points of Aqidah in this Risala so that we understand them. So the next point is, Al-Kaffu Amma Shajara Bayna Ashabi Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Wa Afdal Nasi Ba'da Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Abu Bakr Wa Umar Wa Uthman Wa Ali Ibn Ammi Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Wa Tarahum Ala Jami'a Ashabi Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Wa Ala Uladihi Wa Azharihi Ridwanullahi Alaihim Ajma'in Three points. All of them are said for the same reason. 
a refutation of primarily the Rafidah, the Shia, but also a refutation of those other groups as well, like the Khawarij, because the Khawarij also have a problem with the Sahaba. In fact, almost every deviant group has a problem with the Sahaba, one of them or more of them in some way or another. Uh, in some way or another. Whether it's one Sahabi like Abu Huraira or it's you know many of the Sahaba, but they have issues. But primarily this is targeted towards the Rafida. And they are those people who one of their many, many deviancies, and they have many, and it would take us more than another session to go through the deviancies of the Rafidah, uh, who are the Yahud of this Ummah, because they resemble the Yahud in their beliefs. But one of the most, one of the things they differ, in fact, one of the only things they differ with the Yahud in, is that they differ with the Yahud in the Yahud's praise of the companions of Musa and their criticism of the companions of the Prophet and of course, the basic pr premise with regard to all of the Shia is that anyone who rejects the imamah of their divinely appointed imams who were given a higher status than the prophets and the messengers, anyone who rejects imamah is considered to be kafir. So they made takfir of all of the companions of the messenger of Allah وسلم, except for a handful because they said that they rejected the imamah of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Yani they rejected that Ali was supposed to be the, not the Khalifa, forget the Khalifa. Khalifa is nothing to them. Yani that he was supposed to have imamah. Yani he rules the world. He rules the world by divine decree. And they said that if anyone doesn't admit that he rules the world by divine decree, then he is kafir. And this is unanimous in all of the groups of the Shia except for uh, the, the Zaydiyya. Except for the Zaydiyya, the overwhelming majority of groups of the Shia hold that anybody who rejects the imamah of their imams, and they have many imams, some have 20, some have 12, some have, and they can't agree on their imams in the first place. Anybody who uh, disagrees with the imamah of their imams is kafir, regardless of whether he, you know, like where he, where he lived and all these various issues. So we do not declare any or we have love for all of the companions of the Messenger of Allah. We say that the best of the people after the Messenger of Allah were Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali in that order. Because this is the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That he used to say, the people used to say in front of him, the best of the people are Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali. And then they used to stop after that. And in Usul al-Sunnah, you will see in addition to that, then the, then the people who took part in, the, in the, you know, the, the early people who became Muslim and the people who took part in the Battle of Badr. And there is, there is a, an order. But the one that is unanimously agreed upon is that the best of people after the prophets and the messengers is Abu Bakr. And after him, Umar. And after him, Uthman. And after him, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Radiallahu anhum ajma'een. We say radiallahu anhum for all of them. We love all of them and we remain silent about the issues that happened between them. And this is my last point, that there were some issues that happened between the companions after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, particularly after the death of Uthman And I've spoken about this in detail, I've got some lectures on this, you can refer to them, uh, but generally there were some disagreements, they made ijtihad, they made their best effort to come to the truth, they all tried their best to please Allah we love them all for the efforts that they made. And we don't, we don't uh, you know, we don't 
speak ill of any of them. There were a group who was right and a group who was wrong. The group who was with Ali ibn Abi Talib from the companions were correct. And the group that was with Muawiyah radiallahu anhu were wrong. And that is proven in the authentic hadith. And there is no doubt about that. But we do not criticize them or rebuke them because they took part in that. All of them did it for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal. And all of them did what was a valid ijtihad, a valid effort to come to the truth. Of course, when you make ijtihad, sometimes you are right and sometimes you are, you are wrong. But we don't speak ill of any of the companions because they argued with one another or they fought with one another. We speak about them all in the best possible way and we do not make takfir of any of the companions as was the sha'an or the situation of the rafidah and the khawarij and others, not just the rafidah, the khawarij as well. The khawarij declared everybody who took part in the agreement of peace between Ali and Muawiyah to be kafir and everyone who was pleased with it to be kafir because they said that it is ruling by other than what Allah revealed. And this is their, you know, this is their, their dead horse that they flog every time, you know, Al-Hukm bi ma anzal Allah. So they basically said that this was ruling by other than what Allah revealed, and they declared Ali to be kafir and Muawiyah to be kafir, and everyone who was involved or everyone who was happy with the agreement that was made between them, or the peace that was made between them, they declared them all to be kafir. So ultimately, it's primarily targeted towards the Rafida, but also towards the Khawarij and the other groups which had something negative to say about the companions. And you'll read this even today from the scholars, some of the, the, the people, the writers and whatever, that sometimes you'll see them say something, you know something bad about one of the companions. As soon as you see that, realize that is not from the Sunnah. No matter what they have to say. You know, sometimes you'll see them just about Abu Huraira, nothing else, but they just, they just start saying something about Abu Huraira. Or they just start saying something about Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. Subhanallah, this is not from the Sunnah. The Sunnah is to love the companions, all of them, to say nothing but good about all of them, to recognize that whatever happened between them was based upon ijtihad and based upon their best efforts, and that all of them were pleased, pleasing to Allah. They, you know, they what they did was pleasing to Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is pleased with them, and they are pleased with Him, and that is sufficient for us. And as we said, the purpose of this very small treaty is there's so much, so much evidence, but we subhanAllah didn't have a lot of time to go through it all but the idea was to give you a flavor of the kind of topics that come under the topic of aqidah what are you going to do now you're going to all take usul al-sunnah by imam ahmed in english foundations of the sunnah read it through you can read this treatise as well it's also in the same it's printed in the same book read the biography as well so you get a bit of knowledge about the quran and the trial with regard to the quran and bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, if you do all of these things, inshallah, you will get a much better idea. Usul al-Sunnah is more comprehensive than what we covered. What we covered was a treatise of just, you know, you can say like a handful of, uh, a handful of points just dealing with the main, you know, the main kind of issues here. Uh, I think we covered 14, 14 points in total. So these are just small points, but they help you to understand the topic of aqidah, what it is, and what it means. Uh, and uh, inshallah ta'ala hopefully that's a beginning next week we have two we're talking about the names and attributes of Allah and inshallah uh, Sheikh Saji is going to come and have a chat with you now inshallah I'll come back for the Q&A inshallah in a bit